Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today with my co-host, Medea Ocher, LARB's managing editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. Today we have an interview with writer Tim DeRoche and illustrator Daniel Gonzalez that re-recorded live at the last bookstore this past Sunday in downtown LA for the launch of their new book, The Ballad of Huck and Miguel. First of all, I should say it was really weird, but also very refreshing to do a live interview. It was. It was kind of nice having an audience um, yeah. because I felt like I usually want, you know, clapping and affirmation after I'm done talking. And that happens rarely. Exactly. And at least it happened that time. So that was nice. Yeah, we actually got to ride the wave of audience reaction, <laughs> we, which we was did. great. Yeah. And it was really fun actually seeing a ton of Angelinos turning out for this event because it was a really Los Angeles-centered yeah. book. Yeah, so the book is, and we'll get into this when we cut to the conversation, the book is a rewriting of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn that's set primarily in Los Angeles and on the LA River. Right. Um, and it was great, again, to kind of get that LA feel, and also we had a great time with the audience. Yeah, we did. And I never thought that I would want to reread a retelling of Huckleberry Finn, um, <laughs> just because I, I feel like I've read the original enough and I don't need to engage with it any more than I already have. But this was a really interesting version because it allowed us to talk about the big switch that happens in this book where Jim has been replaced with an undocumented immigrant named Miguel, who Huckleberry Finn meets at a foster home. And he and Miguel take down the LA River together. All right, let's get to that conversation. Great. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming tonight. We're really excited to be speaking with Tim DeRoche and Danielle Gonzalez live at the Last Bookstore in downtown Los Angeles. We're. We are recording tonight's conversation for the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM. So this will air at a later date. It's not live, though we're live right now. And I'm Eric Newman, LARB's gender and sexuality editor. I'm also joined with my lovely co-host, Medea Ocher, LARB's managing editor. And we are joined, obviously, by Tim DeRoche and Danielle Gonzalez. Tim is a writer and filmmaker, a native of Milwaukee. He currently lives in LA's Mount Washington neighborhood, where he says that he can see the LA River from his porch. Also nice to have a porch. Uh, (laughs) Danielle Gonzalez is a Highland Park-based printmaker, an LA native with roots in El Teul, Zacatecas, Mexico. He studied graphic design at the California College of Arts and Crafts and UCLA. Tim and Daniel both collaborated on the book that we are celebrating and launching tonight, which is why all of you are here, which is The Ballad of Huck and Miguel, a modern-day retelling of Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, in which Huck lights out from St. Petersburg, Missouri, to Los Angeles, where he meets Miguel, an undocumented immigrant with whom he forms a powerful bond as they flee Huck's murderous father and the law in pursuit of justice. Welcome to the show, Tim and Daniel. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And thank you all for showing up. So we're going to talk for about half an hour, and then we'll do a Q&A after just to let everybody know that you'll be able to join the conversation once we're done. And just to give you guys a flavor of the novel, which obviously is launching tonight, we're going to have Tim read the first couple of paragraphs. Happy to do that. All right, chapter one, me and Pap light out for California. You don't know about me without you've been to St. Petersburg, which is in Missouri, which is where everything starts. That's a beautiful place right up on the big river. 
It's a wild place, too, where there's all sorts of bully critters in the woods, and some of the people are just as wild as the critters. But there's some regular folk, too. Nothing don't change in St. Petersburg but real slow. My friend Ben Rogers, his mama says that time done forgot us altogether and that the people are talking and living just like it's still the 1800s, even though everybody knows we already passed 2,000 year. Well, I can't vouch for it. She might be stretching it a little bit, but then again, maybe not. It weren't a good thing, but a bad thing in her view for folks to get stuck like that. As for me, I like a place that don't change too much. There's other places, I'll tell you about one of them, where things change all the time so fast that a body can't barely keep up. And I come to see the prophet in that too. This here is the full true story of how I left St. Petersburg for California and went on the run from authorities with a real live illegal Mexican. And I even got rid of my pap for good. Me and Miguel, we had a right bully venture on that concrete river in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, which might be the biggest city that ever was. I'll tell it to the best of my abilities. There might be a few stretchers along the way, but I'll work them in nice and proper so as you won't notice too much. Thanks, Thanks so Tim. much, Tim. <laughs> Thank you for reading that. You're welcome. And congratulations on the book. Yeah, thank you, congrats. thank you. Four years of work. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Can you talk to us a little bit about that work? Kind of what inspired the project? What was your process working together as writer and illustrator? Um, yeah, so uh, my wife and I were out kayaking the river. And around that same time, I was rereading Huck Finn as I do every couple of years. I've been a big Twain fan since I was a teenager. And when you're out on the river, it's, you know, you realize it's a wilder place than you think from just driving it over, over it on the freeway. And you just started to think about that as a place where you could have an adventure and started picturing Huck on the river. And then it took a while to kind of figure out, okay, well, if he's on the run in Los Angeles and he's escaping down the river, well, who's he escaping with? And, you know, eventually came to think that the right way to tell that story was an undocumented immigrant. And so wrote the book in 2016 and met Daniel about a year ago. And so Daniel and I have been collaborating on the illustrations for the book for the last year and, and feel so fortunate to have someone of Daniel's caliber doing the art for this book. The illustrations are just gorgeous and, and they, they really contribute to the story in an in a incredible way. Daniel, how did you get drawn into the project? Well, through a mutual friend of ours, uh, Christine, who's here tonight, she introduced us and... Uh, we had a meeting, and uh, the book was still getting like its last touches, or he was still editing the book. And um, yeah, we just got straight to work, right? Like we just started. I mean, it felt easy, you know. Like I understood what he was trying to do with the book and with uh, rewriting Hook Finn, and I could imagine already what the illustrations would look like just because um, I grew up here, you know? And the setting, the LA River, is something that I'm very familiar with. I grew up blocks away from the river in Bull Heights and remember crossing the Sixth Bridge, although it's gone now, but that was a big part of my landscape growing up and living in Los Angeles was the river and the bridges that went across it. So it always played a big part in my personal landscape but also in my work. Some of my work has the river is uh, present in it. And yeah, we just got straight to work. Daniel has a great sense of story, and so we were really able to engage on particular scenes, mm -hmm. you know, that we wanted to illustrate big cinematic moments. Uh, you'll see one of the illustrations is fireworks exploding over the Glendale Narrows while Huck and Miguel pass underneath, and it's just a, an incredible cinematic moment. And then there are other details that Daniel does that also add to the drama of the story. There's, there's a moment when uh, Miguel is trying to inject himself with anti-venin after having been bitten by a snake. And it's just, it's a, it's a really powerful 
detail that, that brings the story to life in a really cool way. Can you talk about your printmaking process also? Because I was very struck by the, because they're woodblock prints or woodcut prints. Uh, Linocut. Linocut. So can you explain kind of how that process works and like how you use it to kind of bring the, the print story to life? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of, when people kind of encounter my work, they think it's like a pen and ink drawing maybe. Mm. But the reality is that those are carvings that I've done onto a surface, and the surface is linoleum. It's just flooring linoleum. I buy it from Linoleum City here in, on the... <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, that big shop. This is Linoleum City, like off Santa Monica Boulevard by Vermont. Uh, and I buy, like, sheets of that, and I carve into the blocks, and then I print it using an old uh, letterpress machine. And uh, that's how I make the image. And I kind of just fell into doing that... Um, way of making images by necessity. When I was living in the barrier, I didn't have access to painting materials the way that I did when I was living in LA. I was part of a, a free after-school art program and when I went away to college when I was 18, I was kind of stuck with not having access to that, but printing, all you need is a carving surface, ink, and some paper, and then you can stow it away underneath your bed, and if you need to move out, you just put it underneath your arm and you travel, you know? <laughs> it's very portable in that yeah, it's way. Very, yeah. It's yeah. very portable. So using that to tell the story, I think Tim was looking for, like, something that would hark back to the original publication of the book, which was heavily illustrated with pen and ink, yeah. drawings and engravings, so it felt like a natural match. Well, that brings me to a question that I wanted to ask both of you, which was the story, obviously, um, Huckleberry Finn is a famous story, has to do with childhood, probably has, it sounds like Tim, has much to do with your own personal childhood as a young boy reading and growing up with the book. Can you tell us a little bit about, and this is for you both, how you grew up, how you might have encountered the story before, where you grew up? Yeah, so, so I grew up in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I would say that uh, I did not have an extremely adventurous childhood. I grew up in suburban Milwaukee, <laughs> and uh, I was a rather well-behaved child who was very concerned about doing well in school. You know, unlike Twain, I think Twain learned how to misbehave early, very early on in life. I didn't learn to misbehave properly until maybe I was 30. Um, wow. Hopefully I've outgrown that at this point. That story is next. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, for me, writing in the voice of a child is just really fun. You know, I had so much fun writing this book because I was trying to see Los Angeles, the city that I love, through the eyes of this naive kid from Backwoods, Missouri, and that was just a really fun way to kind of re-experience the city. And, you know, Huck is a, he's an abused kid, he's a resilient kid, and that's a character, a protagonist that, uh, you know, as a reader, you want, you find yourself bonded to. And the other thing about writing from the point of view of a kid is I think, especially writing for adults through a child protagonist, is that I think we have an easier time suspending our disbelief when we're reading the voice of a child. And so it allows you to, to have a little more fun with that adventure down the river in a way that if I was writing from the point of view of an adult, I think, you know, you're going to be a little more skeptical of some of those things that happened to them along the way. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously it's a modern retelling of the tale of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Can you talk about the kind of translation work that you're doing? I mean, one of the things to pick up on what you're talking about, about writing from the perspective of a child, is that what works really well in the novel 
in both novels, actually, is the defamiliarization that writing from the perspective of a child lets you see. So there's like some very L.A. things that happen in this novel. Like there's a, a kind of cribbing on the Kardashians. There's like a reality TV show that like involves all these kind of insane characters. So can you talk about what L.A. lent you as kind of a place in which to explore this like larger political kind of question about an undocumented immigrant? Yeah, I mean, L.A. is a big, diverse place, right? And there are, there are many, many different Los Angeles, and we, we all experience, each yeah. one of us experiences many Los Angeles during any given week. And, uh, you know, the fun part of a road, I won't call it a road movie, it's not a movie, right, but a road book, <laughs> or it's a journey book. And so the, the two main characters are able to meet a lot of different folks, right? And so we were kind of able to have a little fun with the different subcultures and different types of communities that emerge around the river and, and you know, and different types of families that exist in LA. Right. And so we just tried to have a little fun with that. And Daniel, would you tell us about your childhood and what you brought? I mean, you grew up in LA. What did you bring from that to the project? I don't know. For me, it was the love of the city. that yeah, And uh, I hope that comes through in the way that I made the images and a knowledge of, of the space, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one of the things that I, that I did, if you look in the book, there's a lot of animal illustrations, and if you look real closely, they're not in a pristine environment. There's like, for me, I thought it was hilarious that there's a, this beautiful illustration of a skunk, and then there's a floating aerosol can next to it. I think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, there's a, just to get you like a sense of scale, there's a, an Arroyo Seco toad, which doesn't live in the Arroyo Seco anymore, but there's a cigarette butt next to it, you know? So it always clues you in like, okay, you're, you're looking at this animal, but it's not in a pristine environment. I think one image in particular, and you know, I could have added maybe 15 more illustrations to the book, but like our, the budget and then also our time. We ran out of like, time. We ran out of time more than, <laughs> than anything. But one of the, the illustrations that Tim let me add was the, the LA River Cats off of Zoo Drive. Mm-hmm. For me, that was like important to have, even though they're not there anymore. I think. Can, can you tell us what they are? Yeah, the LA River Cats. If you go on the five freeway and you make your way to like the Gene Autry Museum or the LA Zoo, you exit Zoo Drive and you get this view of the LA River, and there's like these sewer caps with these pointy little triangles on the top. Artist Leo Limon went around painting the cat faces over these in the <laughs> 80s and 90s and even like up into the 2000s. But before him, there was another artist, a woman whose name I can't recall. She was doing that and it was always like a constant presence on the river, but particularly on that exit. And it's just like markers like that, I think needed to be included in the book, you know? And Yeah, I, wanna, I wanted to come back also to yeah. the uh, wildlife. We were originally trying to illustrate different plot points of the novel, and uh, Daniel started getting really excited at one point about doing these wildlife portraits that are often used in the chapter headings of the book, and they're just gorgeous, gorgeous prints, and it's a theme in the novel, is sort of the wildlife in L.A., and I don't know of any other major city in the world where wildlife, especially on the east side, wildlife is just a part of your life in L.A. You know, you mm-hmm. run into coyotes, you run into skunks, there are red-tailed hawks flying overhead, and mm-hmm. Daniel captured those in such a beautiful way, but he also tried to do that with capturing these urban details as well and combining the urban and the wild in the same illustration. It, it, I think it's consistent with how a lot of us experience the city. Los Angeles, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Can you also talk, Tim, about how you got into that voice, which is very particular, right? I mean, this is also true of Huck Vinn's narrative voice in Twain's original, but it's 
difficult to read. It's almost Shakespearean in that way, where you kind of have to read it aloud to yourself in order to, as a reader, get yourself into the rhythm of it. I wonder what that was like to write and like how you inhabited that voice and perspective. I approached it with a bit of trepidation. I was kind of excited <laughs> about the project. I approached that with a little bit of trepidation. But once I sat down, it just it kind of worked. And, you know, a big part of the editing process was going back to that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Huck misuses words in a really fun Constantly, way. Constantly, yeah. Kind of yeah. mangles the language, but in a really fun way. And I was talking to my wife about this earlier. It's, it's one of the great joys of being a parent that you don't really think about. It. Your, your children just mangle the English language in really interesting ways, right? <laughs> that sort of reveal things. Like, for example, we have four princesses in our house. Snow White, Cinderella, Belle, and Cindabooty. The pink princess, which is obviously <laughs> Sleeping Beauty. So anyway, the Cinda Booty is Cinda a much Booty. more exciting. Yeah, I know it's 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 it's, <laughs> it's it's way better than the original. Um, also sounds like much a great drag name. I feel oh, yeah. welcome to the stage, Cinda Booty. Cinda <laughs> <laughs> Booty is an ongoing character in our in our house. But that it was really fun to try and do that. It was a challenge, and a big part of the editing process was going through over and over which parts are working. Right, not just with me, my editor David Yule helped with some of that, right? Identifying which parts of that vernacular were working and which weren't and Mm. kind of polishing it, yeah. Can you both talk about developing, because as I understand it, it was a collaborative, developing the character of Miguel, right? Like what informed him? Also, obviously, Miguel, who is the undocumented immigrant at the center of the story, is also, you know, if you look at Twain's original, he's linked to Jim, who is mm-hmm. trying to escape slavery. And so what connections do you see between those experiences? And how did you guys kind of try to bring a very concrete characterization to Miguel in the novel? I'll start. I, I want to hear Daniel's answer to this. Um, but, you know, Miguel is the hero of the story, right? I didn't set out to write a story about immigration policy, right? And very early on in this project, I was talking to a Twain scholar, Laura Trombley, and she said to me that Huck Finn isn't about race, it's not about slavery, it's about an abused kid looking for a safe haven, right? Mm. Now, the safe haven that he finds is in his friendship with the escaped slave, Jim, right? And so... You know, you could read a message into that if you want, but it's more a book about friendship than anything else. And so that was important to me. Now, you're not going to read this book, and there's not going to be a big mystery about what my feelings are about immigration policy, but that's not the central theme. And Daniel really helped helped with the character of Miguel and Miguel's speech patterns and his history, and we kind of rounded out the character with, with Daniel's help. Yeah, yeah so um, when... Tim started giving me the parts of the text that involved Miguel. I kind of, I mean, I started looking at it and relating it into what, how my uncles would behave. Because from my family, they were around horses that are cattle ranchers. Okay. So which is also what very, Miguel does. Exactly. Yeah. So it was, you know, when I read certain parts, I was, I know I would tell Tim, hey, you know, it would be better if you use this word, or maybe Miguel does this instead of that. So Tim was really open to my, um, to well, like my criticism and yeah. my uh, mm-hmm. suggestions. suggestions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, for this project, I think that's one of the great things that Tim didn't come in with his ego and was like, oh, here, and I'll elevate it. It was like a collaboration. It was like he was open to suggest. We were both open to each other's suggestions. But in forming that character, Miguel, it's a composite of a lot of people in my family that, you know, some that were undocumented, some that work with horses. In particular, if you look at the illustration of Miguel injecting himself with the anti-venom, that belt buckle is a rodeo belt buckle that was 
left to uh, my friend Romil when his father passed away. His father oh. left him that belt. So that little detail in there just kind of, for me, brings Miguel to life and relates him to real people rather than... So a lot of the mannerisms that are written in the book are coming from that source. Was there something that you encountered, Daniel, that you were like, you know, this is just not right. This would never happen. I think La Llorona, <laughs> it's like the way, the way she appears, it's like very, very like particular. And I was like, no, 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 like she would never say that. <laughs> she will, number one, well, she would never wear black. Right, I had, I, I had, her, I had her in black, which is uh, inappropriate, I understand. And she would never say mijo, she would say mis hijos, mis hijos. <laughs> and yeah, like that, that like stood out right away. I was like, no, you have to get it right. La Llorona's kind of a big deal, you know. <laughs> you mess that up. <laughs> but that, but that, that, I mean, that whole process was extremely fun for me. I mean, first of all, I've got this book, and I'm, you know, Daniel and I are talking back and forth. Let's try this. Let's try that. And Daniel just brought himself to the project, right? You know, he brought his full self to the project. He, we talked through the story, and he's just, you know, we're going back and forth with these amazing images and illustrations. It was just, it was, it was really fun to write the book. But that was kind of a lonely process, right? The last year of collaborating with Daniel was just incredibly fun to see him work and the amount of work that he puts into each one of those line of cuts is incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, after the thing the project ended we missed our weekly visit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> come in, like I would set like a, a timeline like all right, ten you know, ten sketches and ten prints by this date. And he would come in to check on me. Once in a while we would only have seven <laughs> or, or five, but you know, like we would always check in with each other and it was just constantly yeah, it was, it was just really easy to communicate in a really easy and clear direction. And his openness to the suggestions. It's interesting because it's almost an older style of author-illustrator collaboration as well. Mm. That I think doesn't happen that much Well, like kind maybe of Rockwell Kent-esque, actually. I was thinking mm-hmm. like the kind of the wood. The woodcuts? Or the lino cuts, sorry. Well, it's partly the reason we decided to indie publish this book is the big publishers won't let you do this. The book would not exist with Daniel's illustrations. It would not exist in its form right now if we had decided to go down that route. Why is that? I don't know. That's just industry standard practice, right? <laughs> they, I mean, first of all, going to a publisher and saying we want to do an illustrated novel for adults, that's a tough tough sell, sell. Yeah. and especially and then if it's it, not explicitly a graphic novel oh, exactly. i think that there's like genre problems exactly and, and then that, and yeah. then if you do that they are going to want to pick the illustrator right they're oh, investing okay. in the book they want to yeah. pick the illustrator i i can understand that but um, i'm certainly glad we decided to go the route we did listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at the Last Bookstore in downtown Los Angeles. We've been speaking with author Tim DeRoche and illustrator Daniel Gonzalez about their new book, The Ballad of Huck and Miguel. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Dan Lopez in the studio with us today to give us a book recommendation. Dan is the author of The Show House. Dan, what book are you going to be recommending? Hi, Dea. Thanks for having me. I have caught Olympic fever. So oh, God. I know, but I've done it in my own way. Uh, <laughs> I'm not recommending any sort of bio from the athletes or anything like that. Instead, okay. I'm recommending Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea by Barbara Demick. 
Oh, okay. Uh, Tell us more. It's a book that came out originally in 2009, and it was reprinted in 2015 with a little bit of an afterword. So it catches up a little bit on what's happened since the book originally came out. The basic premise is Demick is an LA Times correspondent for Korea. At least she was at the time she wrote the book. And she was responsible for covering both Koreas. And of course, as you can imagine, it was very difficult for her to get into North Korea throughout most of her time. But she did find a way to get in there and talk to people a variety of times. And throughout this process, she met six people from North Korea and their families who had since defected. And so over the course of 15 years, she interviewed them about their lives in North Korea and then adjusting to life in South Korea after they defected. What I found most fascinating about all of it is my family came from Cuba, so we also escaped a communist regime. But there was nothing in my world growing up that was anywhere close to the experiences that these people are depicting, not just the hardships of life in North Korea in the 90s after the Soviet Union collapsed and after Kim Il-sung passed away, but also the like level of fervor of these like true believers. Like a lot of these mm -hmm. people were like 100% into the project of North Korea. Some of them had even moved there, had like moved from either Japan or from South Korea to North Korea, like when the state was forming because they really believed in it. And then as things panned down, they like heard the stuff from the outside world and they got a chance to taste life outside North Korea. They really just changed their opinions. And so it was kind of fascinating to watch that transition happen and just see a study of how all these different people are now like trying to integrate into a society that at one point was similar to theirs. Like North Korea and South Korea were very similar for a while. And then they started obviously separating quite extreme. And so it's kind of fun to, to follow them and, and learn a lot. That's so interesting. Dan, would you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yeah, absolutely. It's called Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea, and the author is Barbara Demick. Thanks so much. Thank you. You are listening to the Law Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Tim DeRoche and Daniel Gonzalez. before you said that you had not really set out to write a book about immigration policy or politics, really. But at the same time, it is really hard to escape the connections between Miguel's experience, which is narrated quite beautifully, as a child who was brought, and they talk about the difficulty of his passage into the United States, and then obviously the reason that he comes under threat is because he saves Huck's life. So it's hard to miss those kind of connections and sure. the incredibly precarious status of almost two million undocumented immigrants living in the United States right now that because of a feckless Trump administration and um, GOP Congress is like increasingly under threat. So like well, kind well, of... Well, I'll say, I mean, you know, I wrote this book pre-Trump and I, I had concerns about the country's immigration policies. Even before, before. Yeah, 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 we should say that. Um, but from a storyteller's point of view, the most important way, they're very similar in the sense that how could you be a good man and be on the wrong side of the law, right? In Civil War era America. Right, and that's what escape, Huck is struggling with. An escaped slave, book, exactly. Yeah. Same thing right now. How can you be a good man and be on the wrong side of the law? And as a storyteller, you need drama, right? Mm -hmm. And someone being on the wrong side of the law, as painful as that is in real life, for a storyteller, that's helpful. You need that sense of drama and stakes. There's also 
There are strong themes of fatherhood in the original sure. Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and, and there are strong themes of fatherhood in this book. I mean, Huck's father, you know, he's a murderous psychopath, right? <laughs> and in a way, Huck finds a father figure in, in sure, Immigrant certainly. Miguel. Daniel, would you speak a little bit about that? You've already said that you brought a lot of personal experience to your illustrations. We're obviously in the midst of a crisis that is nearing, what, March 5th, right, is, yeah. is when, it, uh, when protections run out. Are you feeling an urgency with this project in particular now, or did it I mean, always feel urgent? I'm happy that it's a theme within uh, this project, and I'm happy that it's something that we're talking about. I don't know, but it's, not, it's also something that we've been talking about for a while, right. you know, for a really long time. It's, for me, it's nothing new. It's kind of like it's been ongoing since I could remember, you know, since when my parents were undocumented before they got their citizenship. It's been like constant, constant, constant. But to bring it forward like this within a novel and just have it be, just have the opportunity to, for people to engage with it that way, I think is helpful. And I think we need to start looking at how the, well, be critical of the narrative we're being sold about immigration is. It's not, it's not the way that they're telling it, you know? There's a yeah. lot of yeah. different ways that it happens that people end up here and get caught between, in between the lines of like law and legislature and all this other stuff, you know? And at the end of the day, it's someone's life, you know? <laughs> but books like this and projects like this kind of like give you a facet of that. Well, that's what I was wondering. Can you talk about how you feel that, like, art and also literature kind of combine to help, like, give us a real sense, people that don't have that experience or don't know people that are going through that experience, that, like, help make it concrete or real or graspable for us? It's like someone sitting down and telling you a story. It's like being a, a willing listener to that story rather than having someone speak to you and then get frustrated and then, like... I mean, this is the perfect vehicle to reach someone's mind and heart. It's yeah. through art and through literature, rather than for having someone, like, debate and, like, get heated and then, like, argue and then just be angry at the end of it and just stay staunchly in your point of view and staunchly in yours. And maybe if through these cultural, uh, cultural vehicles you'll break that vision and maybe see some humanity. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the impact of literature, though, is kind of on a longer time horizon, right? You know, the urgency of current debates about current policy, right? I mean, our book, unfortunately, doesn't really speak to that, except for the fact that we have a good man at the center feeling the brunt of some of the policies. But it doesn't, it doesn't help solve the current. I wish it did, but it, it doesn't. Yeah, of course. Something that I also wanted to ask you is, um, Tim, you kept saying that this, this book is, it is for adults. But while I was reading it, I, I was wondering, why isn't it for children, too? Uh, in terms of learning something, telling a story, do you not think of it as a, as a book that kids can engage with? So I, I think of it as a book that could be appropriate for high school students. Uh -huh. Sometimes they mm. teach Huck Finn. I've been talking to a lot of English teachers um, in the context of this book, and they, they sometimes teach the original Huck Finn to middle school students. And... That book is a very mature book, right? There's a lot of social satire, there's a lot of irony, the language is difficult, there's obviously the racial issue, right? Those are very difficult things for a seventh or eighth grader, like a 13-year-old to handle, right? I, I do think that this good book could be appropriate for a sophomore or junior or a senior in high school um, as a way to kind of talk about the original maybe, um, and we're, we're talking to some teachers about experimenting with that, but I don't, I don't think of it as a kid's book because I think there's also, 
you know, Huck's father is trying to kill his son, right? And so yeah, there's a, a lot of intense stuff that goes on. <laughs> there, yeah, it is a little intense. Well, it's like I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Night of the Hunter, the the old. There's a Charles Lawton movie from the '50s in which Robert Mitchum p- plays an um, evil preacher, mm-hmm. and he's chasing his these two kids. They know where the money's hidden, and this murderous preacher is chasing these two kids down a river. That's a movie with two child protagonists, but it's. I, I don't know if I'd want my seven-year-old watching that movie. <laughs> Although, you know, it has a certain stylistic element that, that feels like it's for kids. So, I don't know. Who knows? I don't have a seven-year-old yet. We'll, we'll find out when she gets there. <laughs> TBD. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Should we take some questions? Yeah, let's take some questions from the audience. All right. Yes, go ahead. So I'm just going to repeat the question to make sure that everybody heard it. How did you land on the name Miguel for Huck's Companion? So it was asked. I wish I could remember the answer <laughs> to that question. I remember playing around with several different variations. Oh, I, okay, I do remember I was specifically playing around with variations of James, right? Um, and Hispanic variations on James, and none of them seemed to work. They didn't fit, and so um, I started playing with other things, and it it was mainly a matter of feel and sound, and to be honest, that was a totally intuitive decision that I made very very early in the process, so I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Why did you want to use the name James? Oh, because Jim. Miguel is modeled on Jim from the original book. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Just repeat the questions. Do you experience a disdain from the New Yorkish, Woody Allen-ish contingent of people, or alternately from the Milwaukee-ish <laughs> and Midwest? <laughs> I personally am probably the Woody Allen-ish contingent <laughs> as a New Yorker contingent of people toward Los Angeles. That's the question. Okay. I'll be curious uh, if Daniel has a perspective. I I see a lot less of that these days, and may, maybe it's just because. I'm living here, it just seems like there's a lot less sense of LA as being an inferior city. I I just get the sense that that is um, slowly fading, um, or maybe quickly fading. It's just, uh, I love living here. I mean, all the best things in my life have happened in this place, right? Or Milwaukee, but you know, um, the last 20 years here. And um, you know, fascinating people live in this town, and it's just such a vibrant cultural city, and, and you know, you're surrounded by all of these different cultures colliding, and we all get along like extraordinarily well in the big picture, I think. Um, and I, I just find it a really exciting place to be. And I don't, I mean, most people who visit me here seem thrilled to be in LA. <laughs> I hear more complaints about Milwaukee and New York <laughs> when they're here. I haven't really encountered people saying that. You know, um, well, I will say though that when I was living in the Bay Area, people couldn't believe that I was from LA. You know, and they was there. Wait, was why like, was that? Oh, I don't know. I just got along with people, and they were like, "Okay, you can stay, but like, tell your friends to go. Like, we don't want, <laughs> we don't want like LA people in San Francisco." And I don't know. It was like this San Francisco versus LA thing, and maybe that's know. the real people that have disdain. It's yeah, just like Bay Area like, to Bay SoCal like, like problem. But you know, it's <laughs> like I, I like, I like both. I don't think I've ever had like put one above the other. But for some reason, people in the Bay Area think. Well, San Francisco particularly, like, always, like, want to be on the map somehow above L.A. and arts and culture and literature. And I never understood that. It's just, like, it's beautiful. Like, the Bay Area is beautiful and L.A. is, you know, L.A. Like, 
they're both it's apples and oranges. Yeah, <laughs> they can't yeah. really compare the both. Yeah, it's it's one sided. I would say I can't yeah. say we're that concerned about it. Um, <laughs> I have a comment first, um, Tim. You were saying that you this is this is Christina, by the way, the person who introduced Daniel <laughs> and me, yeah. me and Daniel. <laughs> so glad I could do that. I still owe you that bottle of mezcal. That's right. Did you bring it tonight? <laughs> you had a comment about saying, you said, Tim, that this, this story is not going to present a solution for immigration policy right now. But my polite disagreement is anytime a story is presented with humanity about immigrants, it brings us as a society a step closer to a humane solution. So I think that there is some value in that here. My question for you and for Daniel is now that you've been immersed in the story of Huck and Miguel, I wonder how it's changed you, how it's altered you as a writer, as a parent, as a transplant Angelino. And for you, Daniel, how has it altered you as a native Angelino and as an artist? How has this story altered you both? Uh, sure, I mean, for me as a, I visit the river a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know, like I, I, coming through this project really changed me just because of the amount of work that I did for it. Coming through, after you do like 44, then, well, 45 lino cuts, there's no way that you could come out the other end without your uh, style being changed dramatically. But I think as an Angelino, I just, I don't know, I feel like I want to capture more of it and my image is because it's changing so fast. You know, maybe I'm getting older. I mean, one of the two, it's, it's just uh, the city's changing in some ways good and some ways bad, you know? And it, it's it's kind of like uh, the LA that I grew up with and I remember is fading really fast, you know? And I feel Wait, Can you urgency. talk about that a little bit, actually? Can you talk uh, about how that's happening? Of what, how LA is changing? How LA is changing from when you well, were Well, I mean... First of all, downtown L.A., I remember downtown L.A. on a weekend, like tonight, would be just a ghost town. And except for me running around the financial <laughs> district, kind of ooey and eyeing at all these different spaces and places, like the Spanish Steps over by the library, or going to the public library, and just being able to walk through, and there's like, no, there's nothing, no traffic, no, no cars, nothing really, I mean... Broadway, Broadway's always been a vibrant center for, uh, I hate saying Latinos, but what other word could you use? Latinos, you know, for Latin, you know, for people to congregate and go shopping. And now it's kind of like been filled in, and now there's a demand for housing that's closer to downtown because there's been more business development, and there there's things to do and see and visit. In the middle, it's put a stress on the communities around, sure. around mm -hmm. downtown. It's put a stress in my community in Boyle Heights. There's people struggling with rent and people struggling with housing. And uh, I'm very aware of that. And I see it. And it's kind of like one of those things. It's like, well, what's, what's the solution? I could go out in the streets and yell and yell at newcomers and be like, hey, get out of my neighborhood. But does that really solve anything? Like, what, what, what's the root cause of that problem? And what's the solution is very hard and it's very nuanced. And I find myself in between that asking, like, well, what's the best way I could, I could help? And, I mean, that's just the alley that I live in right now. It's like housing is a very big issue. The explosion of the homeless population is a very big issue. It's always been a big issue, you know? And, like, what's the solution to that? And I don't see... Uh, pushing towards a solution rather than, like a long-term solution other than just pushing them out of the way and it breaks my heart you know but 
that's the city I live in, and that's the city that I, you know, want to continue to live in, because I, I know and I have faith that we will come together and hopefully alleviate some of those problems. You know, I'm hopeful. <laughs> I do want to answer um, Christina's question as well. I mean, one, one way I'm changed is just my friendship with Daniel, honestly. And that was a very rewarding year that we spent together, and, and I don't see the work in the same way that I saw it a year ago. You know, I had a finished manuscript a year ago, but I don't see the work in the same way as a result of working with Daniel. So um, that's one thing. And then secondly, like Daniel, the project kind of forced me on the river. And, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd kayaked the river, I'd hiked and biked a little bit, but... You know, for the project, I ended up going, you know, from the headwaters in Calabasas all the way down to the Long Beach estuary. And that, it's just a fascinating place. It, it, it functions as a sort of underworld for our city. You know, it, it, it has a very different role in our city than does the Mississippi in the life of the country back in the 1800s. But um, that's one other way in which it's affected me. I think we have time for one more question. My question's actually for Daniel. I want to know a little bit more about the process of how you guys came together to work on the images. Was there a particular print that was more difficult to figure out or that you went through a lot of drafts or back and forth, either because it was technically difficult or you're trying to figure out how to portray something visually the right way? Was there a specific one that you guys really worked on? I think the night scene. Yeah. Then we went back and forth on that from like a two page and then it turned into like and the cover image oh the, the cover the, the big yeah, ones yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. big one. <laughs> yeah. tim was doing the final drafts of the book as i was doing the lino cuts so one of the things we did well first he made a list like this is the list of illustrations i'd like and then i had him take like a couple lines like of, of before and after the action takes place that i'm illustrating just so i could get a sense of place to, to place the illustration, um, and then I did, would make a sketch, a really rough sketch, and really rough idea, then we would talk over them. I think the first one that I did was like the coyote. And then after that, we went into doing like the smaller ones, like Huck escaping the RV. We called those spot illustrations, and then we started tagging some of the bigger ones. Uh, one of the ones, uh, I think the cover image we were struggling with, with was because we already had kind of like this big image of Huck and Miguel in the river with the fireworks. And then the cover, we didn't want it to make it too close to a, an illustration that was inside. But I'll, I'll let you... Yeah, I think the cover one is the one I remember. The cover has some, you're limited in design in some ways. And so we had some uh, constraints there. For listeners who might not be able to see the cover, would you describe it? Yeah, so it's basically uh, a shot of downtown LA with the river in the foreground, kind of a greener part of the river. So this is the Glendale Narrows, where the river is what's called the soft bottom river, where it's, it's not completely paved over and there's lots of wildlife, lots of foliage. And so what's great about that image is that Daniel's capturing the city at sunset with the skyline. So there's obviously the urban element, but also the wild element. And then Huck and Miguel are in the, the very foreground uh, making their way down the river. All right, maybe one final question. I just think it's curious that I grew up in L.A. too, and the L.A. River for me is concrete. And so hopefully this book maybe will bring it back into you know, it's the ocean and every place else here, right? Well, and I'll say, one thing I should say is that uh, the Friends of the Los Angeles River are here. They're, they've got a table yeah. at the back. 
No, it's great. I a huge, know. huge I, fan of happening. their work, uh, revitalizing the river, exactly. and 10% of my proceeds from tonight will go to uh, will go to Folar, and they've oh, been very great. supportive and helpful. Yeah. Just a couple, a couple quick questions for both of you. Um, where do you both live? Because this city, like you said, is so huge that where you live also sort of speaks to. And then I had a question for you, Daniel. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how you came to your art? I'm sort of curious how. Oh, uh, you want to answer your? Uh, yeah, so I live uh, kind of on the border between Glassell Park and Mount Washington, and so very close. I can see the river from my porch, but I got to use the long lens. But it looks beautiful in the morning. Well, I still live in Boyle Heights, and my studio's on Highland Park over on Avenue 51 by the train tracks. And how I came to around to doing my art was really funny. I was uh, at California College of the Arts, well, Arts and Crafts when I was there. <laughs> and everybody was running to take those tech courses. This is back in like 98. So everyone wanted to take like all the coding and all the web design courses, which that curriculum was being built as it was being taught. So it was very clumsy. It was like the beginning of like the internet kind of almost. Wow, I'm old. <laughs> uh, and um, so there was all these great professors that were teaching print design that had trouble filling their classes up. And I got a chance to take classes with Doug Akagi, who is a designer who designed like the original Gap logo. And then uh, with typographers like uh, Philip Crane, who took us to Center for the Book. And then that's where I got exposed to letterpress. And then later on, I would take um, like free community courses at the Mission Cultural Center for Lino Cut with Juan Fuentes. And then later on, I would like volunteer my time at Center for the Book so that I would get a chance to play with the Vendor Cooks. And then I learned about letterpress that way. So by the time I came to Los Angeles in 2002, I already had five years of experience doing uh, printmaking and uh, Letterpress. In 2005, I published a book, a little artist book called Eight Omens of Misfortune, which relates the, uh, the eight omens that the Aztecs saw before this coming of the Spanish. And that was all done in handset type with lino cut illustrations. It's a small little accordion book. And that's where I kind of like cut my teeth and like, all right, I brought it all together and I could do this thing and I've been doing it ever since. Well, and what's so wonderful about Daniel's studio, I mean, it's such a manual, mechanical effort. And if, if you haven't had a chance, we have a book trailer, kind of a making of uh, trailer that talks about how Daniel made the art and shows him at work, both carving and uh, printing. It's really cool to see. And it's just such an old school art. It's, it's cool. <laughs> All right, so we're off to end it there. We've been speaking with Tim DeRoche and Daniel Gonzalez, who are the collaborators behind the new book, The Ballad of Huck and Miguel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Medea and Eric. Thank you. We've been speaking with Tim DeRoche and Daniel Gonzalez about their new book, The Ballad of Huck and Miguel, in a conversation that we recorded live at The Last Bookstore in downtown Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. 
Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour. Thank you.